Well, hello guys. It's the, uh, it's the 24th, Tuesday the 24th of March. My name is Ross Katzenbarnas and this is Season 1, Episode 2 of No Name Podcast. Um, I am back for another night um, just to chew the fat, see how everyone's going, um, enlighten everyone on what's going on um, in terms of things that interest me and uh, what I'm doing in a bit of time that I'm working from home. So... Basically, a little bit of working from home today um, means a little bit more podcast listening, uh, a little bit of light banter with Scotty and Swanee season one. Um, some good banter in there from those two and Ralphie Horowitz, so I enjoyed that. Um, and yeah, that's kind of about a lot of the stuff that I did. I cooked a nice nice dinner tonight. Now, I was going to say one of the nice things about being home a bit more during the day um, it's just the ability to, to sort of prepare things for the night and get work done that you need to do and um, yeah, you've got a bit, bit more time up your sleeves to just kick back and, and sort of prepare some nice meals. So tonight I had a nice baked salmon uh, for the family, a bit of lemon uh, in the oven and then top that, top that off with some, some green beans and some pumpkin um drizzled with feta cheese so nice little nice little combination tonight now love to know what other people are doing in terms of you know are people baking more um are people are people actually cooking what are, what are they doing um you know i mean i'm doing this podcast and um, people would know that that listen but you know this is a good time people got a bit more time on their hands um, to sort of try something new or do something they've always wanted to I think and and that's what I'm doing um, and and that's that's kind of how how it will be for me um, for the moment but yeah I, I was sort of going through some stuff today and one of the one of the things I love is going through I sort of mentioned it yesterday is going through Rob Moody's Twitter so Rob Linda too and his YouTube page. It's bloody awesome. It's the guy literally has a vault of cricket um, statistics and, and videos on his, his page. And he posted a video today of a game from 1999, a 50-over uh, match, an exhibition that was played between Australia and India, Australia A and India um, in Los Angeles of all places. Don't know where they played. That looked like they played at one of the NFL stadiums, but... He was showing me the Australia A lineup. My goodness, what an absolute lineup it was! I'll read, I'll read it for you. Read it for you in a minute. I was just reading some of this type, this team out that was playing for Australia. Have a look at the side that day. Adam Gilchrist opening the batting, wicket keeping, captain captain as well. Um, didn't make a lot of runs. Only made nineteen off forty two balls. Ryan Campbell, Western Australian wicket keeper as well as Gilchrist. He opened the batting, eight off twenty one balls. Um, Gilly was actually bowled by Harbajan, caught by Vivius Laxman. So that, you know, there's three of the greatest cricketers of their era, um, potentially, in, in, and they're all playing at a game in Los Angeles 21 years ago. So it's pretty pretty interesting to think about it. Number three for Australia is Michael DeVenuto, um, a really handy first-class cricketer. He played a little bit of some one-days in the late 90s, I'd say, um, but never, never quite cracked the test team, sort of. Think for those who are a bit too young, think David Hussey, but probably the generation before in Tasmanian. Um, Damien Martin batted at four. He made 22 off 56 balls um, in a 47-over game. That's that's not great going. Um, 
And you look, Andrew Simon's basically, he was he was basically Australia's sole run scorer on that day. Um, top score, 77 off 85 balls, three fours, one six for Andrew Roy Simons. Uh, Brad Hodge batted at number seven. He made 30 off 40, um, two fours in that. Shane Lee, Brett Lee's, Brett Lee's older and not quite as uh, talented brother, even though he did play one day Cooper Australia, he was nowhere near as good as Brett Lee. Um, he was an all-rounder to Shane Lee. Uh, he made a duck, golden duck, caught and bowled by Harbishan. Uh, and Brett Young, uh, I believe he might have played a test match for Australia, actually. Let's just check this out. I reckon, I reckon I've heard, um, heard the name Brett Young. Yeah, Brad Young. Brad Young, he played... I thought I'd heard the name before. Brad, Bradley Young. Bradley Young played no test matches. He played six one-days for Australia. Um, and there was another fellow, Bert Creevy. Brendan Creevy, never heard of him before. This is the first time. This is actually quite weird. I've never heard of this bloke before. So he was born on the 14th of February, 19, or the 18th of February, 1970, Queenslander. Um, he retired a couple of years after this game in 2001. And he was a, what does it say here? Um, he was a six foot five tall, Tall right hand right hand bowler. Um, he made one not out. Um, and then Brett Lee actually was batting at number ten. He didn't bat. And the other guy was a guy called. Oh, Try and look at the the other the other the other player who played in the eleven. L K Hansen. Never heard of him either. His name. Oh, fella called. Um, a fellow called Lee Hansen, who's 47, born on the December the 3rd, 1972, from Kerrang, played for the Australian Capital Territory when they were in first-class cricket or in um, in the old Mercantile Mutual Cup, the, the one day, the domestic one-day comp. So he played for Australia. He, he played in that Australia exhibition series, but never actually played for Australia um, as well. Which is um, which is kind of interesting, <laughs> interesting to say the least. Like this, and you look at the the Indian side in there uh, as well. You look at guys like as I said, Harpajang Singh, Vivius Lakshman, Mohammed Cave. He was a he was a um, he was a relatively established um, cricketer in the Indian side, a batsman, middle order batsman, from memory in the early two thousands as well. So. There's a few out there, and, and you know, some more Rob Alinda, Rob Moody gold that he had today. He had, today was, um, oh, he had this video of someone O'Donnell hitting a massive six of the MCG. Um, Dean Jones' 59th birthday today, actually. Dean Jones, a great Victorian. Um, he, he, um, his 59th birthday and he had, Rob put a few uh, videos up of Dean um, Dean Jones basically smacking him out of the park which was great and then 
Rob also loves putting up ones of Viv Richards. Now, I reckon Viv Richards, well before my era, but Viv Richards would have been one of those players who just would have been built for T20 cricket. Like, from what I can see, he's sort of, from what I can see in these these footages of, footage that I've seen of him is he bats like Chris Gale, just very powerful, strong at the crease, and he actually looks like him too, well built, um, very casual, relaxed kind of guy. Um, I remember seeing a video that, that I saw on this uh, Rob Moody's page a few couple of months ago, and it was actually a photo of, or it was a video of a coin toss at the MCG before a one day match. And there is Alan Bordo who's come out on a, I think it might even have been a test match. I don't think, actually, I don't think it was a test match. But Alan Border's come out in his blazer um, and, and his Australian one day kit. And literally, Viv Richards has gone out there. Well, it might have been in English. It might have been in England. And Viv Richards has literally gone out there in a Bob Marley t-shirt and thongs and said, yeah, mate, we'll have a bowl. <laughs> like, what an absolute... Like, I know the term boss gets thrown around a bit, but what an absolute boss. Like, Viv Richards, he could do whatever he want, uh, wanted to. I think he made the... I think he held the record 100... In a hundred and a test match of 57 balls, which stood for a long, long period of time. Um, I remember as a kid actually being really disappointed because that day that Adam Gilchrist just absolutely went ballistic at the WAC in 2006 against England in the third test match of the Ashes, um, when Gilly had been in a bit of a rut and Gilly came out and literally blasted him into all parts of the ground. That was still in the era where no balls were actually counted or wide balls were counted as as a ball bolt. So literally as um, on the 56th ball when they were going to, um, when Gilly was basically going to make his turn, I think he was on 98 or 99. Um, one of the palms, I can't, I can't remember what it was, it might have been Matthew Hoggard, sort of um, one of these blokes that was good in England when they had mint on the ball and, and it was reverse swinging, but it was absolutely terrible um, in Australia and, and couldn't seem to buy wicket. He was bowling, and he just bowled this massive, massive wide. It was just absolutely rank. It was off the pitch, and the umpire literally had no no choice but to call it a wide. And everyone knew in the ground, and everyone knew on TV that that was supposed to be Gillies. Gillies, um, that was supposed to be his runs where he he broke with Richards' record, and unfortunately, he did not think he hit it off fifty eight balls. Um, and not 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 um, fifty six that he needed to break Viv's record, but um, still still absolutely amazing that in this day and age, you know, until until not that long ago, Viv, Rick, Viv Richards' as fastest century um, in Test cricket stood stood the test of time, um, considering how much bats have changed um, in in this day and age with how how big they are and how powerful they are. And you look at what the bats that Viv Richards was batting with, he would have just been absolutely made to play cricket um, in, in this era. Um, I think, when, when was I? I'm just reading something now. He blasted one, the master blaster, 56 balls. It was the fastest, ten, fastest century in test cricket in history. Um, I've, got to, I've got to admit, it's... It's pretty, it's pretty impressive to think about that at that just just to think about how good someone could be to hit a, a test century of 56 balls, especially um, 1986. The 15th of April, 1986, actually, was when he made it. Uh, the master blaster himself. 
trying to, yeah, Gilly hit his off 57 balls. Misbah, oh, Huck hit one off Australia for 57 balls as well. Um, I think, right here, Brendan McCullum, he went to one. Um, so Brendan McCullum hit one against Australia in 2016. Made his 100 or 54 balls and then make 145 or 79 balls. Now, this isn't T20 cricket, this is genuinely um, this is test cricket we're talking about here. So, it's, it's pretty impressive that a guy like Viv Richards, it basically it took 30 years for someone to break his record. And Brendan McCullum, if you yeah, actually have a look at the bat that he's using, like I'm, I'm sort of looking at some photos now of the bat that he used when he was. Batting against Australia, and you look at the the thickness of the edge, um, or the actual thickness of the bat, and how big a willow is. It's much wider, um, much wider, and, and a lot more got a bigger middle. I think anyone that knows anything about cricket, and you talk to guys from the old days of play, and you have a look at their bats and you use them, and they've got fantastic middles. The middle's probably ninety percent as good as the middle on bats they make today, but. They've got tiny edges, and, and um, the actual bat width is, is nowhere near as, as wide. Um, they're a lot heavier, too, the bats. Like, you look at these bats, and you're like, geez, that feels heavy. And you pick up the ones today, and geez, that's so light, even the nice, thick ones. So you see why these guys today make so many more runs, um, and why... I, see, I think, you know, you see, I see it today, like, you know, edges that might not have carried do carry edges, you know, you know, leading edges go for four and that sort of stuff. That's just what happens. Um, that's just today's day and age. So, yeah, that's um, that's a little bit of what happened in cricket. Uh, I guess in terms of what's happening in cricket over the time now. One of the other things I've been enjoying doing <laughs> now, I've got a little bit more time at home from my computer, is actually looking at the Wayback Machine, looking into um, sort of the World Wide Web as it used to be um, and, and looking at what what was going on in particular um, a Collingwood Collingwood blog that was started in the late 90s called Buckley Surfers which is a a page on the internet that's dedicated to all things Collingwood and um, a lot of a lot of love for Nathan Buckley it's actually run by a guy called Driver um, driver is also dad at home <laughs> and to me so um, it's interesting reading some of this stuff and it's quite insightful because one of the contributors on Buckley Surf is a guy called Taurus um, Taurus being a certified practicing accountant um, in his own right um, very successful in industry um, is, 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 is old Taurus and he's got a really interesting article here from September 2001 which talks about um, oh, how would I describe it? it just talks about the AFL's revenue and the revenue streams coming through the AFL and quite interesting given what's going on today and in, in the sort of going future talking about the AFL and just to see where the AFL is um, and it's actually incredible to look back at what happened 20 years ago and 18 years ago when these figures were sort of from um, and, and 
I've had a chat to Taurus about this in the past, and he sort of said that he basically sent an email to the CFO of the AFL at the time and said, oh, I'm trying to write an article about this, and, it, and he basically did. Um, and and he was able to, I'm not sure what the CFO was at the time of the AFL, but he basically gave him all this info and saying, this is what, these are what our numbers are, and these are what our predicted numbers are in the future, and this is what free rights were. Um, and yeah, looking at looking at this broadcasting deal and sort of how it eventuated over time. Um, I mean, you look at 1987, effectively is ground zero for the AFL of AFL back then, um, and and basically they couldn't. Seven were previously doing the footy broadcasting, and um, they they didn't even. I guess seven didn't want to pay for the footy. Basically, they they could they couldn't actually get anyone to, to pay for the footy rights, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. Um, if you thought about it three months ago, you'd think, "Geez, that's incredible! Like, how can no one would pay for this?" Obviously, now the world's a very different place to what it was three months ago. So um, you can't you can't look at it um, from that point of view. But just even looking at it, it's just it's pretty pretty unbelievable. Um, and, and trying to see how it all it all eventuated and how it's all played out over that period of time. Um, but I know that from 2002 for five years, seven when Seven gave up the, the broadcasting deal, nine, Foxtel, and ten, signed a five-year, $500 million deal with the AFL. So basically gave them $100 million um, from broadcasting rights. So if you think... Looking back, so that's $100 million a year, considering that in the year 2000, Channel 7 was paying $37 million for broadcasting rights, which is actually pretty incredible when you think about it from that point of view. So effectively, in the year 2000, the AFL's profit, as outlined in this article that I'm reading on a Wayback Machine from Buckley Surfers, shows that the AFL's revenue is $110 million. So effectively, in two years, the AFL went from revenue, all revenue, all of its operating revenue being $110 million to two years later, its broadcasting rights revenue being $100 million. So basically 90% of all of its revenue from, from, the, um, from, from the previous, uh, previous uh, two, two years prior. So you'll have a look at that and I mean, even back then, um, just looking at the numbers, I mean, the AFL, the AFL's grown exponentially since then, I could assure you, and it's probably shrunk exponentially now um, with what's going on in the world, but the latest broadcasting rights deal was 2.5 billion Australian dollars. Um, and I think it was over seven, what was it? Was it over seven years, I think? I think it was over seven years that they did that, that deal. Um, yeah, seven years. So that's the end of the 2022 season. Um, so values at about 418 million US dollars, um, no, uh, Australian dollars per year. Now you have a look at the NFL; they're getting um, in Australian dollars, um, not. Um, the NFL is getting 38.244 billion Australian dollars over nine years, 
from 2014 to 2022. So that's $4.249 billion per um, per season, which is, I guess we are literally a small fish in a very, very big pond. Um, but I think it's, it's interesting to note that the AFL was able to grow itself, um, grow its revenue base basically just like that overnight through the broadcast rights deal. And I think it's been so addicted to broadcasting revenue from, from TV. Um, probably, I think, rather naive, naive in their own um, view, even though people society's consumption of sport and just tv and entertainment in general has changed um streaming services have become a lot more popular i can see you know now i think they were talking about previously it's all gonna it's all gonna be up in the air now and nothing's certain but they're talking about amazon facebook um these kind of companies coming into the next broadcast right still in some way shape or form um they probably should have come in at this broadcast right still the one before uh, and, and streaming should be seen as a genuine option as to how people watch. I know I consume a lot on my tablet, uh, on my phone, um, and, and don't personally watch a lot of TV per se, especially freeware TV. I love sport though, so if there's sport on, I'll watch that. Um, and if I've got an interest in it, I'll watch that. But I don't actually find myself sitting down watching regular um, standard free-to-air TV at all, really. Uh, one, I don't really have the time, and two, for most of the stuff that's on there is not, not really interesting to me. I'm not really interested in reality TV shows. Um, reality TV shows are the furthest thing from reality. Uh, it's basically a whole bunch of people trying to make themselves famous and, and get big and um, become actors in their own right, which is good for them, but I'm not going to watch it, so... That's just my choice, and that's my view on how things are in life, and then that's it. So I can't really complain. And you know, even now I'm looking at this article from I get, I guess, um, when was it? Nearly 19 years ago. Um, 19 years ago now, 18 and a half years ago, and uh, you can see that basically the same issues that were. I guess present in football back then are still present now. And we're still still discussed in today's day and age. You know, should the uh, you know what should be the split between AFL revenue and club revenue be? Does the AFL get too much? The clubs not get enough? Should you know the bigger, more powerful clubs pay for you know taxes and and things like that and have their um, income redistributed to smaller clubs and, and struggling clubs? Um, you know, why is there, why is there, um, you know, should they be getting more money and should the smaller clubs be getting more money or less money and, you know, do fans and members actually, um, do, do they, do they get a, um, you know, should they be getting grand final ticket access automatically for their members and, and so forth. So same issues that are still, still involved, um, in, in football, um, I mean, it's weird to think that, I mean, I'm looking at expenses-wise, I'm one of the ones that was saying that 20 years ago, the AFL spent $15 million on game development, which is, I guess if you look at it in today's dollars, I don't know what it would be, but geez, it's not 
that much. Um, that's for sure, there's not that much there. In game development, especially, it's probably the most most important thing. Um, that's definitely the most important thing um, to grow the game or any any sport you've got to develop. Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of issues, and even you know this is sort of looking at beyond the future in terms of beyond 2002. At this stage, this was, um, you know. Club membership prices can only be raised so much before membership numbers drop off. Well, I think now people are going to realise that numbers membership numbers are going to drop off because people don't have the uh, the ability to to afford that. Um, and uh, it's it's sad, but I think that will happen. Um, you know, oh. yeah. There's a. Oh. You know, the players want more money, the players always want more money. It's it's kind of like it's conundrums. Like, do you pay the players more money? Do you not? Well, I'm not a sports administrator, so I don't really know, but the players do put on the show, so you want to make sure that they're getting getting paid, um, is, is my view. You don't want to end up with a sport like tennis, where basically there's hundreds, there's millions of kids around the world who grow up wanting to be, be professional athletes and professional tennis players and there's thousands that might get the opportunity to potentially break it or make it into it um, and basically a hundred of them make a living out of it regularly and the rest are literally um, fighting for food scraps at the, uh, at, at the buffet if they can get there so you don't want to end up like that, you don't want to be sport like that where there's so many issues and the integrity of it too. I mean, anyone that knows anything about tennis, go and look at the challenger. Go and look at some of these challenger events. I mean, there, there are some pretty dodgy operators that, that are there who are betting on games and, and tell players to throw games. And you know, a lot of these these young, they're sort of a lot of them are just kids. A lot of them are barely out of their teens or in their teens still, um, in their twenties. Males, females, doesn't discriminate but a lot of them fighting to to literally put petrol in their car um or you know eat eat their next meal so they usually do it um something for a quick buck just to get them through it which is sad you don't you don't want you don't want athletes to be like that but i think you know there has to be a bit of perspective to think our athletes in this country are pretty well looked after um in comparison to others around the world um and i think that you know, a lot of them, a lot of our professional footballers don't have to work second jobs or anything like that. You look back at previous generation, 30 years ago, most of them, basically all of them did have second jobs or football was their second job. They had some other job they went to during the week full time, but that's all changed. And, you know, even even sports like soccer, they haven't been professional for too long. Um, women's sports still semi-professional in this country. So, I mean, there's, there's different types of different things. Um, also, I just had a look quickly before saw that the today was today's the fourth anniversary of the passing of Johan Cruyff, who is one of I think the architects of modern modern football, um, that being world football soccer. For people out there, um, early seventies, he he was just a I guess he and his he was captain of Ajax he was their best player um, and he started to play this, this thing called total football Ajax did where basically um, 
they they pass the ball into their net and they use their feet and their skills, which is sort of weird to think about now because a lot of teams play very similarly um, in, in all leagues in the world, uh, in Europe, um, in England, in, in Spain, in Italy, a lot of teams play that style of football, but back then no one really did and the Dutch um, were the pioneers of it and, and Ajax was and um, Rice Michel, he was, the, he was the coach of Ajax and they won a few European Cups in that time and um, and Cruyff was basically the the star Dutch player and he was the one that sort of ushered, ushered a new generation of, of, of footballers through and, and a new generation of new style, I, I believe, as well. And, um, he's a big influence on, on modern football. Um, he also was the later, he became a manager, he managed at Barcelona um, in the 90s and, and a lot of the, the way the Barca plays is basically that total football that, that Cruyff played and he was used to. So Barca still play like that today and, and um, we can have Johan Cruyff to thank for that. So uh, rest in peace to, the, to the, the greatest Dutch player that ever lived. Um, some other really great Dutch players, especially in that era, past him and even even today, but none of them I think are as good as Cruyff and I've only seen video footage, but his ability to just turn... Um, his defenders inside out was is incredible, um, beautiful skill, sublime, and, and a fantastic finisher as well. Um, well. I'm just having a look at some other stuff from sport on this day. Um, really interesting to see that the 24th of March 2000, 2020 marks the second anniversary of something really weird. And that is something I spoke about last night, and that was um, Cameron Bancroft and his incident where he got caught on camera putting his sandpaper down his pants um, when it was in the sandpaper was in his pocket and tampering with the ball which became known as the uh the the sandpaper gate scandal that rocked australian cricket for a little while um, and changed changed the direction of australian cricket i think it's it's quite (laughs) quite weird you think about it you think it was two years ago and here people were saying it was a worst day in Australian sport and all this sort of stuff and you look at what's going on now and you think well that's actually really 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 insignificant um, and I think it is um, in the grand scheme of what's going on um, but I think the ripple effect of what happened there will probably continue to be felt by um, many people for many many years to come in Australian cricket um, and I think there are people still carrying around the baggage I think unfairly Steve Smith's coming a lot of blame still for that um, people around the world are still booing him and all this sort of stuff which is I guess their right to do but I'm not that um, not that not that big a fan on booing I think booing is one of those those things that people do because other people do it's sort of like monkey see monkey do kind of behavior i mean why do people boo i can think of reasons why i would boo someone um and i'd actually have to explain why that's the case i mean there's there's players like i'm a big collingwood fan and there are players that have left collingwood i know that left on not great terms i thought um when i was a kid my favorite footballer at Collingwood, other than Nathan Buckley, basically, um, was a was a young half-forward flanker called Nick Davis. Now, Nick Davis, 
he's the guy that kicked those three goals for Sydney in the um, 2005 semi-final when Anthony Hudson goes, oh, I see it, I don't believe it. You know, Nick Davis. Um, and he's now an assistant coach with Sydney, I believe. Um, but Nick Davis was, his father had played for Collingwood in the late 1970s. He'd also played for Carlton in North Melbourne as well, Craig Davis. And um, he was a bit taller than Nick, and I think he was a, sort of a, a second, he was a full forward um, from the stuff that I've seen. But Nick was this sort of um, energetic, exciting half forward flanker. And he was at Collingwood, and he was my favourite player, well, number 19. That was Nick Davis. Um, and, you know, I got his autograph when I was a kid, and I thought, this is one of the greatest things ever. I come to Victoria Park to a family day, and Nick Davis is signed my jumper. And um, I remember Dad was sort of saying, like, oh, ask him if he's going to re-sign. And I said, oh, are you going to re-sign? I didn't really kind of knew what that meant. I sort of thought, oh, are you going to stay at Collingwood? He's like, yeah, I want to, I want to stay at Collingwood. And I don't know if he said it to me because I was a, um, yeah, I don't know um, if that was because I was a kid and I was seven years old or six or seven years old. I can't remember how that's, how old exactly I was. I can't remember. I was just seven years old and he probably said, yeah, yeah, I'll say it to him. But I remember going and thinking, yeah, Nick Davis, he's, he's going to play Collingwood forever. He's not going to go to Sydney because there were, there were rumours that he was going to go to Sydney. That was where his family is from. Um, that's just, I guess that's part and parcel of footy, but it was a bit different back then. It just, footy was a little bit more tribal and players wouldn't move that much. This is 2002. Um, and I remember at the end of 2002, Nick Davis left and, and went to Sydney. I was devastated, right? Like, you've got this, you've got a jumper and you've got someone's number on it. You think they're going to play at your club forever. And they actually told you, oh, yeah, I'm going to re-sign. And you kind of feel a little bit let down by that. You think, oh, that's that's crap. Like, I, I just, I really wanted Nick Davis to play for Collingwood. I loved Nick Davis playing for Collingwood. And it still pained me every time Collingwood plays Sydney and that Nick Davis is playing for Sydney. I'd be like, oh, bloody hell. Now, I reckon I might have booed him once the first time he played um, against us in 2003. But... I can't actually ever remembering remember booing another player at a football game, and it just mystifies me. Like I remember over the last few years that um, Collingwood's had a lot of players that have left Collingwood. Players left Collingwood, and we're talking not just players that played twenty or thirty games and couldn't get a game. Like those players, players are fine. You know they've got they're gonna earn a living somehow and if someone's going to offer them a two-year deal and Collingwood's only going to offer them one year and they're on the fringes, I'm more than happy for those guys to go, I totally get that. Footy's, footy's a business, sport's, sport is a business. Um, these guys are going to look after themselves and their own families and their own well-beings. But there's always ones, and even you know, players that leave Collingwood, I can think of Dale Thomas, Heath Shaw, Travis Cloak. We're talking guys that... All, all Australians, best and fairest winners, club legends, premiership players, really loved players. You know, even adding guys like Sharon Wellingham, um, Chris Dawes to a lesser extent as well, but left Collingwood um, that I can think of and, and played for other clubs. And to be perfectly honest, I remember sitting in the Ponsford Sand where I normally sit and I remember against the Bulldogs in 2017, yeah, 2017, round one, and Travis Cloak had gone to the Bulldogs and Trav took a really nice mark, about 55 out first quarter in front of the Ponsford, 
and I just knew like it was probably on a slight angle like no more than he marked pretty much directly in front and Trav just went back and it was past 50 so he knew basically if he hit it well he'd kick it hit it perfectly split it all celebrated all his teammates got around his first dog first goal for the dogs and the whole time all these Collingwood nuffies around me were booing and it's like hang on a minute mate like you, you guys got the world's shortest memory like Travis Cloak he played he played 12 seasons at Collingwood he won the best and fairest he won a lot of goal kicking I don't know how many times he won a premiership he was an all Australian um, he's the best contested mark I've ever seen um, he was an absolute workhorse he gave everything he had for the club and to be honest in the end he prob- the best thing for him was probably to leave Collingwood and the best thing for Collingwood was probably for Travis to leave as well and these people are booing him. And it's like, you guys have no idea. Like, you guys are genuine nuffies. Like, you know, these people, I was thinking, this is just nuts. Like, why are, they, why are people doing this? Same with Hay Shaw, same with Dale Thomas. Like, these guys are Collingwood Premiership players. Um, you know, once they win a Premiership for your club, I think it makes everything a bit different. But even if they're a legend in your club, so be it. It, it happens. Um... I mean, I look at, you know, in English football, like, John Terry is a legend at Chelsea, and he ended up playing his last couple of seasons at Aston Villa in the championship um, because he, he didn't really want to go to another Premier League club because he didn't want to play against Chelsea. But what are Chelsea fans going to hold it against John Terry that at the end of his career when he couldn't really get a game every week at Chelsea that um, he, he was going to go and chase a paycheck somewhere else and try and set himself up for his post-career post-playing career management um, career she's done relatively well no like I just don't it just doesn't sit well with me even a guy like Michael Owen as well as a Liverpool fan like Michael Owen's best years were at Liverpool um, he came on the scene really young he was a star for seven years at Liverpool then he went to Real Madrid I mean then he went to Newcastle and then he ended up at Man United and I think the fact that he ended up at Man United made Liverpool fans pretty annoyed initially I was thinking why wouldn't we try and sign him like, why would he go back to Man United but then I thought about it I thought hey, he's probably going to Man United because Man United got a good score and they're actually going to win trophies like, we probably did. we weren't in the position of win trophies back then in the Premier League but I mean Mike Lowen literally won an FA Cup for Liverpool he won a, he won a League Cup with Liverpool he won a UEFA Cup um, he won a couple of league cups actually um, he was the European football of the year in 2001 literally his best years undoubtedly were at Liverpool and here are Liverpool fans booing him a lot of Liverpool fans don't um, don't even respect him as a Liverpool great to this day because of that uh, whereas a guy like Robbie Fowler who actually left Liverpool sort of probably as his peak probably just a little bit past his peak or um, his best years are probably a bit behind him, Robbie Fowler, and he ended up coming back to Liverpool a lot later on in his career. So left in 2000 and started 2002, I think, and came back at the end of, or at the start of 2006, so four years later, and, and you know, people, you know, Fowler's nickname is God, and Liverpool fans still love him, and he's still an ambassador for the club, and or he was until he took the Brisbane Raw manager job on, but a guy like Michael Owen is absolutely despise my little Liverpool fans which I find weird because um, he, he again was probably the first Liverpool player that I um, I fell in love with and, and absolutely adored but I guess by the time Nick Davis had left like 
Michael Owen left and it was kind of like, oh, geez, here we go again. But, you know, you get on with things. You find new favourite players and, and that's the thing you love. It's, I think that's one of the good things about sport is that there's always something to keep you interested in and captivate you. And I think there's always, you know, you've got to look at, at half, you know, the glass half full. I mean, I've got a lot of CSM, Collingwood shoot me moments, but my God, like you look at, I look at Collingwood now and think, yeah, the CSM moments I have it because I want us to be better. Um, you know, I, I don't want to just make the eight, even though I probably think our list is probably between fifth and eighth, I want to win flags. You know, that's what you do. But I look at our side from four or five years ago and we had guys um, who were running out and playing who, who you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't get within a bull's roar of this current side. Um, and that's just a fact. Um, and I, I remember watching the video actually the other day of, I think it might have been at the end of last year actually because it was the 20th anniversary of the Millennium Games. So and at the end of 1999, um, Collingwood played Carlton on New Year's Eve in, a, in you know, the last game of the Millennium, which is sort of like this exhibition game. It was a piss take and... I think Brendan Favola kicked 12 goals. And that was sort of like his break. That was sort of the time where I was like, oh, this guy might actually be all right. I think he played a couple of seasons. At, I think, no, no, I think that was his, the end of his first season. And um, everyone sort of took notice and thought, geez, this Favola bloke actually goes all right. Like, he may not be a bit of a player. He ended up being a pretty good player for Carlton. Um, did the odd fev. But... I was looking at the Collingwood side from that night, and geez, like you look at that and you think, geez, like Collingwood finished 15th in 2000, and we finished 16th the year before in 99, so we finished last and second last. Um, and yeah, our side was bloody terrible. Like, if I, I can remember the 2001st was the first year I actually probably went to the footy every week and all that. Um, but my goodness, if I had to watch all that side every week now, I wouldn't be able to go to the footy. I'd be bloody. I'd be, I'd be traumatised. Um, and, you know, there are, there are clubs out there, like I've got mates who go for St Kilda who have never seen a flag. Uh, at least I've seen my side win one flag. Um, you know, I've got mates who go for St Kilda whose dads have never seen St Kilda win a flag. So that's that's the that's a sad thing. I mean, you know, if you're a Melbourne supporter, right, their last flag was in 1964. So, you know, if you basically have any good memory of that like if you have a real distinct memory of you know melbourne winning the flag in 1964 you've got to be 60 plus um you'd probably even have to almost be mid 60s now so you'd have to be you know there's, there's you know a good couple of generations of melbourne fans that haven't seen any success at all i mean you look at sides like the bulldogs who, who hadn't won a flag in so many years and well you know not that far away from going to the wall so sport can turn like you know, footy can turn quickly, sport can turn quickly. You look at Richmond, um, look at Collingwood recently. They've, they've made some quick, pretty quick jumps up the ladder. Um, you don't stay down the bottom for too long and you don't stay at the top forever. I think that's that's kind of the precipice in, in life a little bit. And it's probably the same in um, probably the same in sport too. You know, you're never as good as you think you are and you're never as bad as... Um, you think you are either you're probably somewhere in the middle um, and I think that's a good it's a probably a good way to look at things especially um, especially with how things are now in life um, 
and, and the current situation we're going through, if you look at it half full rather than half empty, um, that would be, that would be, you know, that would be probably what I would advise and that, that, will, that will help people get through the hard times and um, there'll be better days on, on the other side. That's for sure.